Luke chapter 12 is where we're going to be this morning, specifically verses 35 through 48. Baptist preacher William Miller published 16 articles in the Vermont Telegraph in 1832 detailing his prediction of the second coming of Christ that would occur on October 22nd, 1844. So many people were attracted to Miller's prediction that uh, he couldn't answer all the questions, ended up publishing a 64-page pamphlet that was entitled, a really simple title here, Evidence from Scripture and History of the Second Coming of Christ about the year 1844 exhibited in a course of lectures. So it just rolls off the tongue. Miller gathered quite a following during that period of time. In fact, they became known as the Millerites. Obviously, when his prediction failed, that group began to disperse. And a number of the followers of Andrew Miller went on to found Seventh-day Adventism. In 1831, 12 men formed the Catholic Apostolic Church. And they claimed that Jesus Christ would return to the earth before the last one of the founding members died. That last member died in 1903. Herbert W. Armstrong founded the Worldwide Church of God. He predicted the return of Christ would take place in 1936. When that didn't happen, he revised his prediction to 1943. Then in 1956, he wrote a book entitled 1975 in Prophecy, in which he implies that Christ will return in 1975. January 1988, Edgar Wisenat, a former NASA engineer, published a book titled 88 Reasons Why the Rapture Will Happen in 1988. He would revise that book the next year. Christian radio broadcaster Harold Camping predicted that Jesus would return on September 6, 1994. When that date came... And Jesus hadn't returned. He revised it to September 29th, 1994. When that date failed, he changed it to the date October 2nd, 1994. In 2011, Harold Camping raised millions of dollars to put billboards up all over the country stating that Jesus would return on May 21st, 2011. Obviously, all of these men were wrong and could rightly be labeled false prophets. Not because they believed in the return of the Lord to the earth, but because they ignored the words of Jesus and tried to come up with a specific date. In Matthew chapter 24, verse 36, Jesus said, But of that day and hour knows no one, not even the angels in heaven, nor the Son of Man, but the Father alone. And in Matthew 25, verse 13, He said, Be on the alert then, for you do not know the day nor the hour. After his resurrection, the disciples asked, Will you establish your kingdom now? And in Acts chapter 1, verse 7, Jesus said, It is not for you to know the times or the epochs which the Father has fixed in his own authority. Every good Bible preacher from the time of Paul on has believed that the Lord could return in their lifetime. Uh, I hope uh, that he'll return in my lifetime. We just had this conversation outside that we're hoping it'll happen any day now. Uh, any moment now would be fine. I'm kind of hungry now, so the Last Supper or the the Supper, the Marriage Supper of the Lamb would be good. I'm I'm all for it. But we are to refrain from trying to predict exactly when it will happen. Satan has filled the world with his false prophets who have 
tried to come up with dates to figure out when the Lord was going to return. They found their little decoder in their box of Cheerios and think they can decode the Bible into revealing something that the Bible specifically says it's not going to reveal. And the problem with that is not that there is a cry for the Lord's return. It's this false prophets who predict dates and cause other people then to just doubt the veracity of the Scripture as a whole. As believers, we are to ignore those kinds of skeptics, but still live in anticipation of the Lord's return. And we are to faithfully serve the Lord until He returns. As His children, we are to to be expecting His return at any moment, serving Him until He does arrive. Jesus told His followers to focus on the eternal rather than the temporal. He told them not to store up treasures on earth, but to store up treasures in heaven. And in light of that, in light of those those commands to store up treasures in heaven rather than earth and live for the eternal rather than the temporal, He tells us to live for the Lord as if He can return at any moment. In the study of eschatology, that is the study of end times, there's a lot of disagreement. There has been for centuries. There's disagreement over the timing of the rapture. Will the rapture be before the tribulation, pre-tribulation rapture, after the tribulation, post-tribulation rapture? In the middle of it, mid-trib, in the three quarters of it, called pre-wrath or any number of other options, or is there even a rapture at all? There's disagreement over the nature of the millennium. Some will hold to the a rapture of the church before the millennium, or premillennialism, or after the millennium, postmillennialism, or there there is no actual millennialism, millennium called amillennialism, and some hold to panmillennialism, which means it'll all pan out eventually. <laughs> but debate, the, 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 despite the fact that theologians have debated the issue and disagreed for over a thousand years regarding Jesus coming back to the earth. They, all good theologians agree that he will come back. He'll come back to rule and to reign, to defeat his enemy, to care for his church. And that is the hope of every Christian. In fact, if we didn't have that hope, there's really not much to live for. There's really no hope on this earth if Jesus isn't coming back. We know, we don't, our hope is not in world politics. And your hopes certainly shouldn't be in state politics, I promise you that. Our hope is not in scientific advancement. If the science can just get us to a point where we can uh, solve all the world's problems, and that'll be fine. We don't live for that. We don't live for modern medicine. Our hope is not in space exploration. Our hope is not in economic security. And our hope is not in the elimination of plastic bottles from the world or limiting your carbon footprint, whatever that means. Our only hope in this world is the coming of Jesus Christ. His coming to defeat His enemies and to control His church and to rule and reign over this world. And I look forward to that day. The return of Christ is mentioned over 300 times in the New Testament. In fact, of the 27 books of the New Testament, only the books of Galatians, 2nd and 3rd John are the only books that don't mention the return of Christ in some way. All the others mention the return of Christ. Jesus spoke of His second coming often. You can look at Matthew 24 and 25 at some point, specifically see a long, a, a lengthy discussion on His return. 
Then there's John 14, verses 2 and 3, where Jesus said, In my Father's house are many dwelling places. If it were not so, I would have told you. I go to prepare a place for you. If I go to prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you to myself, that where I am, there you may be also. The return of Christ is our hope, but it's also the encouragement that we use for those who have had loved ones who died in the Lord. Christians who have already passed away. First Thessalonians chapter 4 Verses 16 through 18 says, For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of the archangel, and with the trumpet of God. And the dead in Christ will rise first. Then we who are alive and remain will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. So shall we always be with the Lord. Therefore, comfort one another with these words. Paul's encouragement to the Thessalonians. Some of them thinking, well, they'll miss the return of the Lord if they've already died. And he said, no, that's not the case. In fact, they get to go first and then we get to be caught up and meet them. And we can use this as a term of, uh, as a means of comfort for one another. We have Christian loved ones who have died. This is not the end for them. They get to be resurrected and be with the Lord. Those of us who are alive have hope for this world because we get to be raptured and be with the Lord. Paul refers to the second coming of Christ as our blessed hope in Titus 2.13. And Peter refers to the second coming of Christ as our living hope in 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 6. So Jesus in our text is, has already warned the, the people who are listening to him not to store up treasures on earth and to stop worrying about simple things that God has already promised to take care of, to focus on the eternal rather than the temporal. And now he's about to give the motivation for doing that. And the motivation for storing up treasures in heaven rather than on earth, the motivation for focusing on the eternal rather than the temporal, is that Christ will ultimately return to this earth. The best way to avoid being entrapped by the greed and the worry that dominate our world is to have your focus on a world outside of this. To have your focus on Christ and your expectation that He can return at any moment. So we'll look at first the that we are to anticipate the return of Christ. We'll anticipate we are to anticipate the return of Christ. Verse 35, Luke chapter 12. He says, Be dressed in readiness and keep your lamps lit. This is, we anticipate the return of Christ by being active. Being active. Be dressed in readiness and your lamps lit. Being dressed in readiness, readiness really means keep your work clothes on. Keep your work clothes on. You know, when I was a kid, you'd come home from school and you had to change out of your school clothes and put your play clothes on. Uh, I was, I might have, I don't remember when I said this last, but uh, I was driving to the office uh, the other morning and I saw some kids walking to the bus stop with big old holes in their jeans. And I thought, I, I got to set home from school if I wore that to go put something appropriate on. Those were my play clothes. Uh, but, uh, you know, we used to have those. You have work clothes and you come home and you put on your, your uh, lounging around clothes. It's not time to change your clothes and put your sweatpants on, your slippers on and lay on the couch. Of course, in this last year and a half where most people work from home, maybe sweatpants and slippers are your work clothes. So, But Jesus' point is, be ready to work. You're a farmer, you keep your dirty clothes on. You keep your farm clothes on. You're the cook, you keep your apron on. You keep ready to work. The point is, there's no office hours for the servant of God. And we remain on duty until the Lord returns. 
Keep your your clothes on. Keep your work clothes on. Be dressed in readiness. And second, keep your lamps lit. That's keep the light on. Keep the lights on. Let your light keep shining before men in such a way that they may see your good works and glorify your Father who is in heaven. Keep your lights shining in such a way that this world will see their way through the darkness of this world to that glorious light. Verse 20, or verse 36. Jesus said, be like men who are waiting for their master when he returns from the wedding feast so that they may open the door to him when he comes and knocks. The picture is a man who has multiple servants in his home, uh, door, doorkeepers, gatekeepers, cooks, whatever, household servants. But he's going to go to a wedding. Now, wedding feasts in that day and age could last up to a week. We go to a wedding, it's in the afternoon, you know, we're going to go, it's the wedding's from one o'clock and we'll be home by six or seven. This was, man was going to travel to go to a wedding, we don't know how far he had to go and how long he was going to be there, which all means that he could come home in 24 hours and he could come home seven days later. The servants had no idea when he was going to come home, they just needed to be ready for whenever he, he did. Maybe late afternoon, it may be early morning. It makes no difference when he arrives. It doesn't make a difference if he arrives in the middle of the day or he arrives in the middle of the night. His servants are going to be ready. When I was in, uh, what's happened in a few countries, Congo, Malawi, Honduras, uh, most homes have a gate around them, a wall around it, a gate there. And, and in, specifically in African countries that I've been to, if you're driving in, you honk the horn and there's somebody inside whose job is just to open and close the gate. And they look out a little flap to see who it is, see if it's somebody that they recognize and they unlock the gate from the inside. They slide it open, you drive in, they slide it closed and lock it back up. This is the kind of an idea. The, the servants are going to be there. They're going to be standing at the gate. They're ready. It doesn't matter what time the, the master comes home. They're just ready whenever that happens to be. They're anticipating his arrival at all times. If he returns in the daytime, you'll find them there standing at the gate, working in the field, doing all the things that they're supposed to be doing. If he arrives in the middle of the evening, somebody's going to be at the gate to open the gate. The cook's going to be ready to fix him a meal. The household steward's going to be ready to carry his luggage back to his room. If the man is is hungry when he arrives, there'll be a meal. If he's tired when he arrives, the bed will be ready. So they're ready to fix a meal or fluff his pillow. It doesn't matter. They're just ready to serve. There's no fear that he's going to arrive at an off hour. That he's going to get there at some off hour and be banging on the door trying to get somebody's attention. As soon as he arrives, the door will be open to him. So Jesus tells us to be like those servants. Be active. Stay active in our service to God. That And we are to anticipate his return. We're busy working for him, doing what he's asked us to do, fulfilling the role that he's given to us. So no matter when he returns, he's going to find us working. So we anticipate his return by being active and we anticipate his return by being awake. Look at verse 37. Blessed are those slaves whom the master will find on alert when he comes. Your version may say awake, which is actually a better translation here. Blessed are those slaves whom his master will find on alert when he comes. Truly I say to him, he will gird himself and serve. And they will recline at the table and he will come and up and wait on them. The master is so moved by his servant's attention when he arrives 
that there's this great reversal that takes place. He, the master, sets his luggage down. He puts on the apron. He tells his own servants to recline at the table. He goes and fixes them a meal and serves them. He's so pleased by their faithful service. He's so pleased by the fact that he shows up and they are right there ready to serve him that he decides to bless them by waiting on them. The master is gracious and kind and generous and he honors his faithful servants who are active and awake when he arrives. This is the attitude that Jesus had when in that upper room on the night he was going to be betrayed. After everybody came in and reclined at the table, Jesus got up and laid aside his garment, wrapped himself in a towel and took the pan of water and began to wash the disciples' feet one by one. He is the master, but he was serving at that meal. It's the same thing that's taking place. Verse 38. Whether he comes in the second watch or even in the third and finds them so, blessed are those slaves. The second watch was 10 p.m. to 2 a.m. The third watch was 2 a.m. to 6 a.m. So in other words, rather the master shows up at an unusual time or an inopportune time, he finds the servants busy. Jesus would give a parable similar to this in the the wise and foolish virgins. There were ten women who were waiting for the bridegroom to come. Uh, They all took their lamps. They went outside the city to wait for him. Five just took their lamps that had the oil that was in them. Five took their lamps plus a jar of oil just in case the bridegroom was delayed. And the, when it started to get dark, they all lit their lamps. And by midnight, they'd all burned through the oil that was in their lamps to begin with. Then they, in the dark, they hear the call that the bridegroom's on his way. And only the wise ones had enough oil to fill, refill their lamps and light their lamps. The foolish ones had to run into the city to go buy oil. And while they were gone, the bridegroom came. And only the ones that had their lamps lit, the five wise ones, were invited into the wedding feast. And the door was closed. The foolish one showed up and banged on the door and said, it's too late. You can't come in. The idea then the parable ends with Matthew twenty-five thirteen says, Be on the alert then, for you do not know the day nor the hour. We are to anticipate the Lord's return. As his children, we are to live in such a way, active and awake, anticipating that the Lord may return at any moment. We anticipate his return by being active, by being awake, and third, by being alert. Verse 39. But be sure of this, that if the head of the house had known at what hour the thief was coming, he would not have allowed his house to be broken into. Now, we typically don't know when a burglar is going to arrive. As far as I know, most burglars don't call you and give you a four-hour window and tell you what time they'll be there, or page you about and say, I'm on my way, I'll be there in 30 minutes. The best protection against the thief is vigilance. You prepare for it. Again, in Congo and Malawi and some other countries I've been in, most homes are surrounded by high walls with razor wire at the top of that or or sharp glass that's cemented into the top of the wall that all is to uh, try to hinder people from climbing over the wall and getting into the compound. But aside from that, certainly in the countries in Africa I've been to, there's always been guards inside the wall. Daytime and night, they patrol the whole grounds. However big or small they are, they're there to keep the thieves out, to be a deterrent to anybody that might want to burglarize the home. 
Luke in chapter or verse 40 of our text says, you too be ready for the son of man is coming at an hour when you do not expect. This is where we get thief in the night, by the way, that he's coming like this thief. You don't know when the thief is coming. Jesus is going to be in the same way. He's going to come at a time you don't expect. But we are to be looking for the return of Christ. As Christians, we're not to be caught off guard. We're to be busy when he returns. But the world isn't looking for the return of Christ. It's going to come as a shock to them, a surprise to them. They're not ready for it. I doubt very seriously that CNN has an icon in their archives that is there just for the return of Christ. So if it happens, they go, hey, get that rapture icon out. We're ready. I don't think anybody at CNN is looking for the return of Christ. Many years ago, I was running a summer camp, and I had a speaker in, and and he asked the teens and the, the adults one night, how many of you believe that Jesus was going to come tonight? Raise your hand. And virtually nobody raises their hand, except for the one kid who always raises his hand, primarily because he's not listening to the question, and he just heard, raise your hand, so he raised it. So. But really, nobody raises their hand. The speaker then cites this verse as a reason to be ready, because nobody's expecting it could be tonight. We are to be awake and active and alert, though we don't know the exact day or time is going to come, that we're not caught off guard, that we're not doing something that we shouldn't be doing when the Master returns, or we're not doing what the Master wants us to do when He returns. We need to be ready. We're to faithfully serve the Lord until He returns. And we should do that because, number two, we will be accountable at the return of Christ. We will be accountable at the return of Christ. Peter asks in verse 41, Lord, are you addressing this parable to us or to everyone else as well? Peter wants to know who this applies to. Does this apply just to the 12 or does it apply to everybody else? Does this just apply to the called and commissioned? Are they the only ones that need to be ready? Or does this apply to everyone? Is everyone to anticipate the return of Christ. And Jesus is going to answer Peter's question by giving two scenarios and two different servants. One that's ready for the master's return and one who is not and the consequences for both. We are going to give an account to the Lord when he returns. And you're going to give an account. I'm going to give an account. We're going to give an account as either sensible servants or we're going to give an account as shirking slaves. So we start with a sensible servant, verse 42. Jesus kind of reiterates the question. The Lord said, Who then is the sensible, the faithful and sensible servant whom his master will put in charge of his servants and give them their rations at the proper time? Who's the one that the serve, that the master is going to reward with more responsibility, in other words? And he gives the answer to that. Blessed is that slave whom his master finds so doing when he comes. Jesus in the first in verse 42 changes the word from slave to steward. They were different words, different connotations. A servant, a steward was one who had charge of certain things in the household, be it the food locker to distribute food to other servants or take care of finances or perhaps both. You think of Joseph when he was sold into Egypt and was bought by Potiphar and he rises to running Potiphar's whole household. He was a household steward. That would have been the word That was used to describe him. Jesus defines a faithful steward as one who's doing their job, doing the job that the master has given them when the master arrives. So he's not just sitting around waiting 
for the master to arrive and then starts working. He's working the entire time. He's a faithful steward. He's faithful to do his job. Since the steward doesn't know what time the master will arrive, he's sensible when he's doing his job at all times. You and I have a responsibility, a stewardship. We are to be good stewards of all that God has given to us and all that he has required of us. We have a responsibility to evangelize the world, sharing the gospel with those around the world, those here, those in other parts of the world by sending missionaries or supporting them or going ourselves. We've been given the responsibility to build up one another. That's our job. We're to encourage one another all the more when we see, as we see the day approaching, as this return of Christ gets closer. We are to love one another. This is a command that's repeated so many times in Scripture, that this is how God, this is how the world will know that we belong to God when we love one another. We're to let our light shine in such a way that others will see our good works and glorify Father. We're to pray without ceasing. We're to use our spiritual gifts for the edification of the body. Every Christian is gifted with one or more spiritual gifts and intended. God's intent is everyone that exercises those gifts for the building up of the body of Christ. These and other things should actively occupy our time until the Lord returns. We are good stewards when we do the things God has given us to do and He finds us busy when He returns, not sitting around just twiddling our thumbs. His promise in verse 44 is, Truly I say to you that he will put him in charge of all his possessions. This slave is blessed because the master is going to take and give us his possessions. Give us even more responsibility when he sees us faithfully fulfilling the things he's already given us. God has promised in a number of passages that he will put the faithful in charge of everything. In the parable of the talents, and the parable of the minas, the ten minas, in each one, the faithful servant who invested or took care of the investment that God has given them are given and trusted with even more. In the parable of the ten minas, the king's response to the faithful servant in Luke chapter 19, verse 17, is, well done, good and faithful slave. Because you've been faithful in a very little thing, I will give you authority over ten cities. 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 12 says, If we endure, we will reign with him. If we deny him, he will also deny us. While there's reward for the sensible steward, where we're rewarded with more responsibility, more blessings from God, there is punishment for the shirking slave. Look at verse 45. But if that slave says in his heart, My master will, not, will be a long time in coming. And he begins to beat the slaves, both men and women, and to eat and get drunk. The master of that slave will come on a day when he does not expect him, and an hour that he does not know, and will cut him in pieces and assign him a place with the unbelievers. The wicked slave thinks, I can do whatever I want. Master's gone. Doesn't matter what I do. He can't see it anyway. He'll never know. I can live my life however I want to live. It's none of his business. It's a case as the the cat's away, the mice will play. I can do whatever I want. He thinks he's got plenty of time to get his act straight. But what's going to happen is the master will come on a day when he doesn't expect it, and then he'll be held accountable for that. 
When I was in junior high, my mom made it very clear that my job was to come home from school and do the dishes before I did anything else. Before I watched any TV, before I went out and played, I were to come home and do the dishes. And back then, I actually had to do dishes. There wasn't a dishwasher. You actually had to run a sink and put soap and, and wipe off the food and rinse it off and dry it off and put it away and all those things. And I knew that was my job. But we lived in a little condominium at that time. And our there was our living room, and the wall uh, next to our living room was the same wall that shared it with the garage. So it wasn't a very high-tech condominium, and you could hear anything that was happening in the garage from the living room. So I would always know when my mom was driving up. So I would go home from school, and I would play, or I would sit down on the in the living room, and I would watch reruns of Gilligan's Island, or whatever happened to be on, and and then when I heard the car drive in, I would turn the TV off and I would run into the kitchen. It wasn't far. It was like three steps. And I would start washing dishes. So when mom came in, I was doing what she told me to do. And she was so happy. And I was happy because I didn't get in trouble and until the day she decided to park on the street <laughs> and walk up to the door and open the door and saw me sitting in the chair watching TV and not doing the dishes. I didn't expect that. She came at an inopportune time. As whatever punishment my mom could dole out, and she was pretty good at it, by the way, is nothing compared to what Jesus says this master will do to the slave who's not busy when he gets there. Verse 46, He will cut him in pieces and assign him a place with the unbelievers. Jesus makes it clear that that servant who is not busy doing what the Lord has told him to do when he arrives is proof that he is not really a believer. He's not really his child. doesn't really belong to him. And there's an accountability that will take place. The more severe, there's more severe punishment for the slave who knows better than for the slave that doesn't. Verse 47 and that slave who knew his master's will and did not get ready or act in accord with his will will receive many lashes. But the one who did not know it and committed deeds worthy of flogging will receive but few. I want you to understand what Jesus is saying here. The more you know, the more you're accountable for the more you've learned, the more you've understood, the more you've been taught from God's Word, the more accountable you are. And he adds to that, in verse, the middle of verse 48, from everyone who has been given much, much will be required. And to whom they have entrusted much, to him they will ask all the more. So that slave that's been given a lot of responsibility is entrusted with a lot of responsibility. There's a lot of accountability. There's a higher expectation for that slave. The more you've been given, the higher the expectation is. Folks, we've been given so much. We have the completed Word of God. We have the indwelling Holy Spirit. We have a church to meet in. We have Bible studies. We have ways to grow and learn and be taught and understand. We have so much available to us. The accountability that we're all going to face is much higher than, say, a third world country where they don't have anything. 
So much higher than, say, the pastors that I trained in Congo and I gave them a MacArthur study Bible and that was the only study tool they owned. We have so much. And therefore, our accountability is going to be so high. And we are to be those servants who are busy doing when the Lord returns. We don't get to sit back and say, well, I just didn't know. God, I didn't know that I was supposed to be serving you. God, I didn't know that I was supposed to be exercising my spiritual gifts. God, I didn't know that I should be studying my Bible. God, I didn't know that I was supposed to tell other people about you. God, I didn't know that I was supposed to be working to advance the kingdom of God. We've been given so much. Be it resources, be it opportunities, be it education, be it information, just be it grace. You and I are a blessed people. Therefore, there's a high accountability for us. Think of everything God has given you and every way God has equipped you. How is that manifesting itself in the way that you live out your life? If Jesus were to return right now and hold you accountable for all that you've been given, how would you fare? Would He look at you and say, well done, good and faithful servant? Is it any wonder that God expects so much of us with all that we've been given? We're to faithfully serve the Lord until He returns. We're to be rich toward God, not rich toward this world. We're not supposed to be focused on the temporal. We're supposed to be focused on the eternal. We're not to worry about the minuscule things of this world. We're to worry about the things that hold eternal value. And we're to do that because we are constantly looking for the return of our Lord, anticipating that it could be at any moment. And that our focus isn't so divided that we're just looking at the things of the world and that's drawing all of our attention away from the things of God. Let's live as if the Lord will return today. Live your life in such a way that when He does return, He finds you working. He finds you doing what He's asked you to do for His glory and the good of this world. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, we are so grateful that You loved us enough to send Your Son to die for us. And then, Father, You've equipped us to serve You. Help us, Lord, to live as Your servants. Help us to be busy awaiting Your arrival, that, Father, You're not banging on the door trying to get our attention when You arrive, but, Father, we are listening for You. We're watching for You. We're busy doing what You've told us to do, making this world, our church, ourselves, ready for Your return. Oh, Father, like the Apostle John, we say, Lord, come quickly. We do long for that day. I will pray it would happen soon, very soon. But Father, until that day, may we be found faithful. May we live our life every day as if that's the day You'll return. So that You might be glorified and people might see the light of Christ and come to saving faith before it's too late for them. Father, use us. Use us to make Yourself known. 
And Father, for anyone that is here that is not ready for Your return because they're not yet saved, I pray that You would open up their eyes to the truth and draw them to saving faith today. And Father, they may be ready